listening to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Karoshi. Am I saying it right? Or if you want Karoshi. Karoshi. It's a, it's a Japanese word that uh, translates to death by overwork. Now, that video uh, is an older video. Um, thing from 2016, but I think the stats are still relevant. Karoshi, am I butchering it? None of y'all speak Japanese, right? Karoshi. Anyway, <coughs> it's a Japanese word that translates to death by over. I cannot read those Chinese words. Huh? Huh? Anyway, uh, maybe I'll just share a funny story, you know, I was, uh, back in the day when I was doing my Chinese O-level, uh, they had like a text for you to read, you know, what was it called where you read the text, and then, uh, yeah, yeah, and then you read the text, and uh, the text I got was a, a uh, step-by-step recipe on how to make uh, sweet potato bread, uh, and so, can you imagine it's a recipe, and so the word sweet potato comes up really often. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but, you know, just for laughs. Sweet potato uh, recipe, and uh, when I read that, you know, I was so confident I knew what sweet potato was in Chinese. And so, sweet potato in Chinese is what? Fan shu, right? Fan shu, mian pao, right? And so, when I read it, I was so confident, and I said, you know, song su mian pao. And so, and, and it's a recipe for how to make sweet potato bread. So, can you imagine how many times I said song su mian pao? Song su, if you don't know, is squirrel. And so, I said, recite a recipe on how to make squirrel bread. And the miracle of the whole thing was, uh, there were two miracles. Miracle A, the examiner did not laugh a single time. <laughs> single time. She just kept it straight. Miracle 2, I got a merit for my Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad has done that. So, Kuo Lao Si. Okay, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> now, Karoshi, you know, we think that this is uh, something isolated to Japan. It's something far off. Just isolated one part of the world, but it is, in my honest observation, an epidemic that is present in nearly every part of the world. Every major city has some form of variation of karoshi. Now, we think that it's a Japanese issue, that it's just the Japanese work ethic, that it's just the way the culture is. But yet, last year, statistically, Singaporeans worked 635 hours more per year than the Japanese. Now, most of y'all have just been filled with national pride. Like, yeah, we beat the Japanese. That's not something that you want to beat them in. Maybe football, but we are a long ways away from that. Now, in Singapore, 61% uh, of our respondents polled said that they chose to stay on after their designated working hours just to, quote, show face. A phrase colloquially used to refer to the act of being present just for the sake of it. Respondents don't only show face by working overtime, it seems. 57% of them also show up at work even when they are ill for the same reason. So they show up even while they're sick just to show face, just to be present for the sake of being present. Almost 5 in 10 admitted that they tend to stay connected to work during their holidays. Almost 80% check their emails at least once. Of those, 25% do so at least once a day while they're on vacation. One in three said that they are expected to be available constantly by their supervisors. Here's my point. Even when we vacation, we don't vacation well as Singaporeans. 
Every year, hundreds of people die by death, by overwork, the pace of life, the pressure of our culture pushes us, it pushes us, and it pushes us. Sometimes there's underlying issues, physical ailments or mental health issues, but being in a pressure cooker of time, stress, and energy and outcomes doesn't heal those things. It only intensifies and exacerbates them. Let's think about uh, some people who passed on in recent years. How many of you know who Anthony Bourdain is? Anthony Bourdain, a chef, um, author, travel documentarian, and we all know that uh, he tragically took his own life uh, in 2018 uh, while he was on shoot in France. He was only 61. Now, some of the commonly known uh, you know, reasons for suicide are illnesses, financial troubles, and worries just surrounding life itself. Anthony Bourdain was apparently not physically ill, nor financially destitute, nor concerned about getting his next meal, nor lacking in any fame. In fact, he remarked that he had the greatest job in the world. A news article revealed that Anthony Bourdain kept a brutal work schedule and was absolutely exhausted in the months leading up to his death. Now, they, they, they checked his schedule and realized that he actually intensified a bunch of his travel, a bunch of his work in the months leading up to his death. He was absolutely exhausted. Eric Rippert, who is also a fellow chef and, in his words, the best friend of Anthony Bourdain, he says this about uh, his death. It never struck me as peculiar, but it was as if he gave everything to his work and then had nothing. Zero left for himself afterwards. The source told people he was always very, very tired. He pushed himself extremely hard. Most producers and crew don't work on every single episode. It's just too much, especially if you have a family, but that wasn't an option for Tony. Next slide. In response to an inquiry about whether he would ever retire, Bourdain once said, I gave up on that, I've tried. I just think I'm just too nervous, neurotic and driven. I would have had a different answer a few years ago. I might have deluded myself into thinking that I'd be happy in a hammock or gardening, but no, I'm quite sure I can't. That was Anthony Bourdain. Maybe he experienced the pressure, the full-on frenetic pace of life, karoshi, karoshi, or death by overwork. Now, this is not isolated to um, secular world, and very much, you know, this culture, this frenetic pace of overwork is also present uh, in my world, the church world. Speaking, I'm speaking from my world of pastoring and ministries. Spiritual workers are not immune to the temptation of overwork. Pastoring is a very stressful job. Now, you, you all don't stress me out, but <laughs> I love you all. I love my job. People make me come alive and all that good stuff. But Pastoring is a very stressful job. You know, in most places, the pastor is not only expected to be the teacher, the pastor, he's also expected to be like the executive director, the management guru, the life coach, the therapist, the community organizer, all in one. But not here. Here, you all are very chill about it. <laughs> if you do a Google search about pastoring and the statistics that surrounds uh, breakdowns and stuff like you would know that pastoring is, is a lethal occupation. Stats after stats of stats will show that pastors, one after the other, you know, varying from different age groups and life stages, are falling uh, either in sin or just falling uh, out of sheer exhaustion. Now, I've spoken about him a bunch of times, but Andrew Stockline, pastor of Inland Hills Church, he took over his, his father's church at age 55 after he passed on. Uh, he, took after, he took over his father's church when his father passed on at age 55, and he began to feel the pressure of what comes when all eyes are on you. And here's something I pulled up from a news article written about uh, Andrew Stockline. 
in his August 12th sermons, not when he talked about his battles with depression and anxiety, he said it's not easy to be a pastor's wife. She sees all of the behind the scenes and especially through this journey that it's been really difficult. I have not been a very fun and easy person to live with. It was his first sermon after taking a four-month sabbatical at the request of church leadership who had asked him to take some time to get better. Stockline said, next slide. Now, this is the words of his wife. We still have a long way to go through it, but we are all in. Taylor Stockline said during a sermon, you guys, he loves this place so much. He didn't want to stop. He would have kept going on and going and going and going, and it would probably cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. And 12 days later, after uh, preaching that sermon from the pulpit and sharing openly about his anxiety and depression, he tragically took his own life uh, by self-inflicted wounds in his church office while his three boys were playing in the playground with his wife. Precious in the world and precious in the church. We live in a culture of exhaustion and busyness. We live in a culture of exhaustion and busyness. Whether you are intrinsically aware of it or not, today you live in a pressure cooker that comprises of the pressures of the world, unbridled ambition, stress. We live in a culture of exhaustion and busyness. I remember when I first came back uh, from the US, I was feeling very social that day and I took the MRT and uh, this guy just runs up next to me and he bumped into me slightly. He was sweaty, he was frenetic, he was chasing after the train. And then, uh, you know, he just missed it, the door slammed in his face and then he was like, oh, I think he said a swear word, I'm not sure. But, but we were standing next to each other, he just missed the train, he was sweating. And I turned over and looked at him and he was panting, he just ran for the train. And I looked at him and I said, um, hey, uh, are you uh, rushing off to somewhere? And he looked at me all confused and he said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He was running for the train and I, I, I think he almost killed himself doing that because he looked like he didn't run at all. And so he ran. <laughs> Y'all don't know him. But he ran after the train. He was sweating. He was a, a slobbering mess. He was angry. He was upset. And he was rushing. He was running after the train for no apparent reason. He was rushing for nothing. We live in a current whether you're aware of it or not, that pushes us, that drives us, that causes us to hurry. Now, I think of an article that I read um, a few years ago about Tattoo, the Basset Hound. The reporter wrote, Tattoo didn't plan on going for a run that evening, but when his owner accidentally shut the poor dog's leash in the car door and drove away from home, Tattoo had little choice. Now, thankfully, when he started driving, a policeman saw the poor dog's dilemma and pulled the car over. The cop had one interesting observation, he said, that Basset Hound was picking up his feet and putting them down as fast as he could. Amazingly, his short legs got him up to 25 miles an hour in spite of being rolled over several times. He has not asked to go for an evening walk ever since. <laughs> we laugh, but that is where most of us are at in life. We are living at a pace of life to which we have no control of. There is a current that is dragging us along, be it the month at work, demands at home, personal drive, or ambition. While we are all in some way aware that there is a current that drags us, drags, I use the word quite uh, in intentionally, it drags us along in life and can admit in principle that it is detrimental, yet we are for the most part okay with it. The truth is pathological busyness, workaholism, being unrested is one commandment we frequently brag about breaking. 
Now, we don't hear people bragging about, I just had an affair last week, or I've gossiped a bunch this week, or I just stabbed the person on my way to church. We don't hear people <laughs> bragging about breaking these commandments. But being unrested, working excessively, is one commandment we frequently brag about breaking, even in church. We venerate workaholism even whilst we suffer under its cruel tyranny. And that is especially dangerous in a city like Singapore, where the cost of living is high, societal express, uh, expectations, etc. It's especially so for those of you who are in any way upwardly mobile or are in a career that you are super-duper passionate about. Though we can all agree that busyness is bad and harmful in the long run, we are still on a deep level, we still on a deep level believe that if we aren't busy or say that we're busy, preoccupied or productive all the time, we are somehow less valued in society and in the world that we live in. The word busy has become a moniker for important. Consider the response we get when we ask the question, how are you? 90% of the time, it will be, how are you? Good, but busy. Good, but busy. And you hear this across ethnicity, gender, social status, life stage. Although the word busy, when we say it, it's often said with exasperation and resignation, oh, I'm just so busy. I think that just under the surface, we believe that we'll be judged as substandard if we ever said I have just enough to do or a word to describe my life now would be margin. I'm so bored. Or these days, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We assume that others will admire our over-busy and implied successful lives, yet we grow to be increasingly dissatisfied, exhausted, and malnourished on a soul level. Today, because of technological advances, we literally carry our work with us wherever we go. Because of the modern rhythms of work that are mediated through personal computers and phones, for people, in the words of one cultural commentator, they leave the office, but they do not leave their work. They remain attached by a kind of electronic dog leash. Research shows that 70% of us sleep with our phones next to us, and 90% of us pick it up the moment we wake up to check our emails, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever young people look at these days. I don't know what's that. <laughs> I'm turning 30 next year. <laughs> Most of, more often than not, our day offs are days where we are spatially at home, but emotionally and mentally at work. Ours is a culture that values the hustle, the overzealous achiever, and the omnipresent email. However, the truth is, busyness is not a real issue here. More often than not, we get busy because of changed circumstance, a disordered schedule, poor boundaries, etc. Busyness is part and parcel of life, really. But whether we choose to admit it or not, for most of us, when we are not at work, we are either thinking about work, scheming about work, dreading work, or feeling guilty about not working. Now, what is that? That is not busyness. That is not busyness. That's restlessness. Our soul, our internal world, the deepest part of our being is in turmoil, is in distress, it is restless. Chronic stress and fatigue is our new normal. Now, when our innate restlessness collide with the restlessness of society, that pressure cooker, the result is an epidemic of emotional and physical unhealth and spiritual death. 
AJ Sodoba has this uh, brilliant quote, he says this, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are obviously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pen for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Increasingly so, our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst, we have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. He goes on to say this, We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. How are you feeling? Welcome to church. <laughs> Just giving you a hope to somebody here. You good? But friends, family, Brothers, sisters, reverends, sisters, I have gospel for you. I have good news. Into a world of busyness, compulsive, overworking, stress, anxiety, karoshi, Jesus comes to offer you rest. And not just rest for your physical beings, but rest for your soul. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Familiar verse, it says, to me, it says to us, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, before we move on any further, I would like you to ask yourself a question. The simple question is this, how, how are you? How are you? If you really consider uh, where you are at in life and how you're feeling, even in this moment, are you exhausted? Are you tired? Or as the verse says, are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you tired? Are you exhausted from the demands at work, from the demands in life, from your own ambition and drive? Are you tired? And into this human condition of tiredness, exhaustion, compulsive overworking, Jesus says that he will give you rest for your soul, for his yoke is easy and his burden light. The question is, you know, is there a practice in the life of Jesus that will make for a life of restfulness in the midst of the restlessness of our culture and our soul, where we trade the burdensome yoke of this world for Jesus' light, easy, restful way of life? My answer is yes, and that practice is Sabbath. That practice is Sabbath. We should note that Jesus immediately follows up this promise with two teachings on the Sabbath. For week four of spiritual practices, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of Sabbath. Sabbath. White Sabbath. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, uh, this is what I plan to do today. You know, I realize that you know, with all these sermons, you know, there really is and I say this often, a lot of ground to cover. You know, I think uh, each one of these subjects in and of itself can be expanded to three or four messages and I've been trying to cram everything to one. And I've, I've just looked at the average time taken uh, for 
uh, the sermons in this series, you guys are about like one hour, five minutes per sermon. Uh, you know, some of you might go, what? You know, last week I heard uh, we had a visitor in church and he said, man, I love this church. I love coming to this church. The sermons here are really short. And, uh, and so, you know, don't complain. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, my plan here is to, uh, you know, really just give you a theological overview of what Sabbath is. And uh, we'll supplement uh, a lot of these ch- teachings, especially with uh, regards to the how-tos uh, in your life group notes and with uh, further sermons down the road. God willing and Andre willing, okay? Um, but yes, you know, so we're, we're going to cover some of the, the basics and um, yeah, just preempting you that there will be ground that I won't be able to cover. And so if you have questions, come up to the front, chat with me. Uh, a bunch of this information will roll out in your life groups. All right? We good? Question, what is Sabbath? What is Sabbath? Sounds so mysterious, ethereal, sounds so out there, sounds so ancient. It really is ancient. Sabbath is that ancient idea and practice of intentional rest that has been long discarded by much of the church and our world. Sabbath is not new, but it has largely been forgotten by the church. It is not new, but sadly, it is new to many of us. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word that means to cease, to stop working. Now, I'm going to offer you a definition of Sabbath from one of my favorite authors, Pete Scazzaro. Now, Pete Scazzaro is a pastor in New York City, and so, you know, we could take a Sabbath definition from like a monastic guy who lives in the desert, but this is a guy who lives in New York City, and so he would actually have to like, you know, overcome a lot of things that we are fighting with. And so, Pete Scazzaro, my man, you guys are really indebted to him, you know, or I'm really indebted to him, and you are, you know, third-hand indebtedness, Pete Scazzaro. Brilliant guy. He says this, The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word that means to cease, to stop working. It refers to doing nothing related to work for a 24-hour period each week. It refers to this unit of time around which we are to orient our entire lives as holy, meaning separate, a cut above the other six days. Sabbath provides for us now an additional rhythm for an entire reorientation of our lives around the living God. On Sabbaths, we imitate God by stopping our work and resting. Now, that, doesn't that sound awesome? Thank you, three people. The rest of you, we will get there, as the National Day song says. <coughs> Deep in my heart. Okay. There is so much confusion and mystery surrounding Sabbath or the notion of it. Do we agree on that? Yes? In the church, um, you know, is it legalism? Is it like part of the law? Uh, is it something that no, we, we don't have to adhere to as New Covenant believers? Is it even relevant for our day and age? You know, we have like relaxation techniques, we have mindfulness. My Apple Watch tells me to breathe, like I need a reminder on when to breathe. You know, we have all these good stuff, you know, we have massages and all that good stuff, right? Do we even need a Sabbath, right? Isn't it for like, you know, slave workers or people who do menial labor, like as you know, 21st century people who are woke, do we need a Sabbath? Is it even relevant, right? I want to go over a few things about our Sabbath, uh, what is not, before I hit the theological basis. Can we do that? Yes? You don't have a choice anyway. I have to find. Here's the thing about Sabbath. Sabbath is not the same as a day off. It's not the same as a day off. You know, most of you all may be like, I do Sabbath, you know. I knock off from work on Friday and the rest is Sabbath, right? Sabbath isn't a day off, but... Uh, biblically and, and defined by most scholar, it, scholars, it is a day set aside for worship. The Sabbath is different from a day off. 
For most of us, a day off looks like a day that we get to all our chores or errands because we live, if I can put it delicately, undisciplined, unsabbathing lives that we have abused ourselves all week long. And it is the catch-up day, right? The day off for most of us is the catch-up day. Nothing wrong with that, but it is not a Sabbath. And day offs are not uh, intentional blocks of time that we set aside. It's a byproduct of the schedules that we have adopted living in this world. Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message, you guys all love him, he calls the day off a bastard Sabbath. Not my words, Eugene. So he calls it a bastard Sabbath. It is the illegitimate child of God's true intention and purpose of Sabbath. It is not a byproduct of passivity, but a day of intentional rest that's directed to God. Malcolm Gladwell famously uh, wrote about the 10,000-hour rule, to, and, and basically the presupposition is this, to become world-class at anything, you just have to practice three hours a day, every day, over 10 years, and you'll become world-class. But what was overlooked in that research that several others have gone through and drawn out is a simple concept that is not just about practice, it is about deliberate practice. It's about paying attention, consciously learning, and then working. That's what turns you into world class. It's deliberate practice. Now, those same scientists have done research into rest, and they noted that just three hours of regular rest, or what we call relaxation, chill, won't renew you. It is three hours of deliberate rest, intentional, conscious rest. That is what will renew you. And that is what Sabbath is, deliberate, intentional, conscious rest. Are you with me? Second thing that Sabbath is not, Sabbath is not a reward for hard work done. We live in a society that says you better work if you want to rest. You better work until you cannot work anymore, until you want to die, then you rest. That is the society that we live in. Therefore, rest or Sabbath is understood as a reward for work done. But scripture tells us that Sabbath is a gift from God to us. Something that we didn't earn, something that we don't deserve. It is a gift from God to us. Think about Adam's first day on planet Earth. Adam's first day in existence, in humanity, planet Earth, was the seventh day. It was the day of rest. Before Adam did anything, he entered into humanity on the day of rest. If I can put it into a modern context, imagine you get a job and your first day on job, your boss tells you, pick a day off and I'll even pay you for it. That is awesome. That is what Sabbath is. It's a gift. Humanity literally started from a point of rest. Oh. <laughs> it's a gift. Next thing is Sabbath is not. Sabbath is not a day of inactivity. It's not a day of inactivity, but it's a day of activity directed to God. It's where you fill your day with activities that are life-giving for your soul. Sabbath is not passivity. It's not a day of just doing nothing. It's a day of God-directed activity. On my Sabbath, I try to stay, I try my best to stay off my phone. I don't do any work. Uh, for me, it's a kind of an odd place because a chunk of my work is reading scriptures. And so on my Sabbath, I read from a Bible that's not my preaching Bible, there's no highlights, it's blank. 
It's beautiful. It's just mine. And I read from that Bible. I stay off podcasts and books. That's what I do on my Sabbath day. But also, you know, I exercise, if you can believe it or not. I exercise on my Sabbath day. I nap. I nap a lot. I read a quote uh, sometime back that says, like, napping is putting your life in the hands of God or something like that. And so that has validated my naps. And so I'm like, Lord, I put my life into your hands. Nap. You know, and so, and so beautiful, right? Right. It's interesting, you read through all the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, one of the uh, hallmarks, one of the uh, signs of a life of peace is the ability to sleep, is the ability to rest, is the ability to nap. And a lot of us, a lot of us are unable to sleep at night, are unable to take a rest, right, because we are restless in, in our soul. Not all you want to take a nap, yeah? <coughs> uh, I also spend a lot of time in the quiet just trying to hear from God. And most Sabbaths, I either end it off with cooking dinner at night for my wife or ordering a nice meal, enjoying it with Amy. I'm trying not to make plans with people on Monday. It's our day. And, uh, and then you know, I do a snapshot of like, what my week uh, is going to look like ahead. And I just pray and ask God for grace and wisdom uh, in the week that is to come. And that's what I do uh, most Sabbaths. Now, there are 12 typical uh, things that most, most Sabbath practitioners do on the day of Sabbath. Can I have that list up? Uh, lighting the candles. You do you. I don't like candles. Um, blessing children, eating a meal, singing, worshipping, walking, napping, making love. I put a bracket there on purpose. If you are married. Um, you know, there's this uh, book that's gotten really famous. It's called uh, In Praise of Slowness. I don't know whether you've heard uh, of that. No, but that's a brilliant book. Highly recommended. It's a secular book. And there it talks about like how you should eat food slowly. You should walk slowly. You should have sex slowly. And all that good stuff. Now I have your attention, right? Reading, uh, spending time alone with God, spending time with family and friends, and gratitude. Now, these are not a list of to-dos, but these are, are just a list of uh, practices that people have found uh, life-giving through the ages and things that you can uh, do on your Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath is not the same as a spirit of rest. It's not the same as a spirit of rest. It's a day dedicated to God to rest, rejoice, and delight in Him. Now, the, the argument for uh, the anti-Sabbath people, they're like, no, aren't we like new covenant people? We have the Spirit of God in us. We live in a perpetual spirit of rest and we don't stress. How's that working out for you? And so, um, it's not the same as a spirit of rest or posture of rest. It is a day, a 24-hour period dedicated to God, to rest, to delight, to stop. It is a full day. We live in a cultural moment of restlessness. The unsatisfied desires of a human condition are exacerbated by the barrage of digital marketing from a consumption-oriented, consumer-based, driven economy. We have a multi-billion dollar multinational industries hovering over our minds via our devices in an attempt to monetize our restlessness. But rest doesn't come from buying a product. It comes from Sabbath. Now, case in point, you know, I just bought this new jacket. None of you all noticed. But you know, I just bought this new jacket. Um, it's green. And so, uh, it's my first green thing. And so, I, I bought it. And when I bought it, you know, I wore it. And I was like, man, you know, I look good. You know, and uh, yeah, I was like, this is good. And uh, this morning, as I was uh, leaving the house, when I was putting on my outfit, uh, this doesn't happen by accident. It happens by intention. And so, I was uh, looking in the mirror. And I was like, man, you know, I think I need a pair of blue jeans. You know, and uh, I think the blue will match the green really nicely. And then I looked at my white shoes, and I'm like, man, white shoes are looking a bit dirty. I need something that's, like, clean, that's nice. And then I was like, man, you know, maybe I need a new belt to match that shoes. Man, my Apple Watch doesn't look very, like, 
you know, stylish these days. Maybe I need a new one. And so, you know, from a jacket that I just bought that uh, I was really happy about, it led to an insatiable desire for more and more. I don't know how many of you experienced that, or am I the only fallen creature here? But <laughs> this is what happens to me all the time. I buy something new, and I go, man, man, you know, that was great. I, I want to relieve that feeling again of like joy, of delight, of accumulation. And Sabbath is a day where we go, it's enough. Sabbath is a day where we yield, where we stop. You know, the, uh, the Orthodox Jews, when they practice Sabbath, Sabbath is a day that they don't buy, they don't sell, they buy all the things before. It's a day to just stop, to delight, and to say to God that it is enough. You are enough, God. I am enough, God. And what I have in life is enough. That is what Sabbath is. And we live in a culture today that, that has conditioned us to constantly desire for more, where our desires are out of order. And Sabbath is a day where our desires, our loves and longings are reoriented to God, the one who deserves all our affection. Now, Sabbath is practiced uh, three uh, ways. There are three common variations. There is um, the traditional Sabbath, which is before sundown Friday night to the same time Saturday late afternoon. There's the Lord's Day Sabbath from Sunday morning gathering through bedtime on Sunday. This is what uh, most people practice. And there is the midweek Sabbath, which is any day of the week. I practice a midweek Sabbath. I practice Sabbath on Monday. And so, you know, I don't know any of you all have tried to text me on Monday, but usually you don't get a reply on Monday. You only get a reply on Tuesday because it, unless your last name is Tan and you are dying, I probably wouldn't uh, reply. And so Sabbath is uh, Mondays for me because Sundays uh, I'm with you all. And whether you choose to believe or not, this is work for me. Okay? And so Sabbath practice a few ways. Okay, now I'm going to go into the theological basis of Sabbath. Are you with me? Yes, let's look at Genesis chapter 2. Whoa, beautiful timing. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now I'm going to uh, draw a few observations from this text. First observation was this, that God built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. In the Genesis account, God establishes for all of creation a pattern for life. God works, so we work. God rests, so we rest. Work and rest live in this symbiotic relationship. After six days of universe sculpting work, God rested. And in doing so, he built a rhythm into creation itself. We work for six days and then we rest for one. And this cadence of work and rest is just as vital to our humanness as food or water or sleep or oxygen. It is mandatory for our survival. Or we even go further to say it's for our flourishing. I want you to catch this, okay? If there's anything you uh, catch uh, you know, in this whole message, uh, I'd like for you to just catch this one point they're about to make. Okay? You ready? Ready? God rested. God rested. God, the most powerful being in all of the universe, God, who is without argument the most important being in the universe, He who holds all things together. God rested. God rested. Now, you don't know my personality, my mouse bricks, 
maybe I'm more extroverted, I'm more of a doer, perfectionist kind of guy, God rested. Maybe, you know, you think you're really important and really valuable to the organization and to your family, blah, blah, blah. God rested. What about the world? Everything's coming to an end. We need revival, reformation, all the good stuff. God rested. God rested. God, the most important and powerful being in the universe, rested. He took a day to rest. Jesus, who is literally the savior of the world, he rested. And to say that you can't rest, to say that you have a, such a life of importance that you can't rest is essentially idolatry. It's essentially saying that you're more important than Jesus. Jesus rested. God rested. So should we. But the idea here isn't that God was burned out or like, wow, I'm so tired from all that universe sculpting work. Like, I've expended all my cosmic energy. There's nothing left in me. I need to replenish that isn't where this rest is coming from. No, we read uh, the, the version of Genesis 2 that we read was the NIV version, and that kind of masks the original uh, Hebrew, and we, we don't really uh, have it in, um, it's not really uh, worded the way the original Hebrew is. Can we have that, that slide up? Genesis 2. Genesis 2, the, the previous verse that we read. Yeah, you know, that, that last line, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. But the ESV is a more uh, accurate translation of this text uh, from its original Hebrew. In the ESV, that last line reads, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. I'll read it to you again. On, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, uh, it's very weird kind of language, and it's almost circular, but it makes it sound like God created something else on the seventh day. Then the, Now, the rabbis for hundreds of years theorized that God created, he did create something on the seventh day. He created something called manuha, which is the Hebrew word for rest, but it looks like delight, joy, and celebration. That's what Sabbath is. It is a day set aside to follow God's example, to stop, to delight in His world, in your life, and most of all, in Him. That is what God did when He rested. The second observation I like to draw out from this text is that God blessed the Sabbath day. God blessed the Sabbath day. In the Genesis account, we read through uh, the text 1 to 3. In the Genesis account, God essentially blessed three things. Everybody say three? Three. First, he blessed the animals. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, essentially spread life on the earth. He blessed them to be a life-giving uh, species, to spread life on the earth. And he blessed humans after the animals. He blessed men and said the exact same thing, be fruitful, multiply, which all of you are doing a great job, by the way. No complaints spread life on the earth, right? I bless you to be a life-giving people. And you know what the third thing he blesses? He blesses the Sabbath. If I'm reading into the text right, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, has the same life-giving, life-producing potential as the animals, as human beings. He blessed three things, and all three things he blessed with a life-giving potential to spread life on the earth. Our culture today, knows how to relax really well. 
And we often confuse relaxation for restoration and renewal. Now, the average time it takes a typical person to go through a full Netflix series is four days. Four days, statistically proven. Four days. Some of you do it in like four hours. No, it cannot be. One whole day, 24 hours. It takes four days for a typical person to go through an entire Netflix series. That's about 12 to 15 episodes. That's about 15 hours of your life. Four days, right? Now, how many of you, when you binge watch a Netflix series, let's say you, you comb through the whole thing. Let me think of a Netflix series. Let's say um, the new... Yeah, that's one. That's but let's pick a trashy one. Let's pick a... The new Meteor Garden. Wow, I cannot watch that. The new Meteor. The new Losing Warrior. How many of you watch Losing Warrior? Anyone? Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. It's, oh, it's just my opinion. Okay, the new Losing Warrior. You watch it, you binge it, you're like, yeah, another, 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 and like, you don't even need to press any buttons. Netflix just auto rolls in the next episode. You don't even have to do anything. You're on your bed, hands behind your head, you no know, chips all over you, and you're watching show <laughs> after show after show, and you're like, yeah, Meteor Garden, don't even know what it's about. And you watch, you watch, you watch. And, you know, you get to about like three in the morning and then you're done with the show. Yeah, finished it. Finish it. Whether you feel a sense of accomplishment, that's all you. But how many of you, after you turn off the TV, the laptop, whatever, you go, hey, my soul is so alive right now. <laughs> I have such clarity of purpose for my life. I feel like stronger spiritually than I've ever was before. I feel like this, like, ability to fight off any temptation. I feel so alive to God's purposes, to the kingdom of God. I'm ready to take on another day. How many of you feel that way? If you do, can you lay your hands on me? Because <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> Most of the time after I'm done, I'm like, I am tired, I'm drained. What did I just do in my life? <laughs> right? That, but that's a legitimate way some of you relax. But I'd like to put it to you that relaxation is dramatically different from restoration and renewal. On the Sabbath days, our souls are renewed and restored, not by just some vain activity, but by God, we are renewed and restored. How many of you have an obsessive, uh, compulsive thing of like needing your phone to be charged all the time? How many of you? Thank you. Thank you. I have a witness to my dysfunction. Now, uh, I, I, there's this pastor that I really love. His name is John Tyson. He pastors a church in New York. And uh, he has this teaching on like... Uh, like our spiritual energy bar. Can I have that slide up? I, I, I coped it from him. Uh, and th this, this is how he, uh, you know, if you can picture this bar, is like your life and your spiritual energy and where you're at in life, you know. And oftentimes we rest when like our energy bar is a little low and then we need to charge, right? And so we come to the point of like, maybe, you know, zero is like drop dead, you're exhausted, you're dead, right? But this point is like, you're like exhausted, you're cranky, you're grumpy, you're just not a pleasant person to be around at all. And so we hit this point and then we go like, man, I need to rest. I need to rest, right? And the next, next slide. But oftentimes, okay, we don't rest to the full, right? We don't take vacations well, we don't take time to rest. We just rest enough to come to a point of maybe like solvency, like management, like, okay, I have enough to tackle the next week. We don't rest near enough, we just rest to the point where, like, you know, wait, I have enough to take on the, the week. We don't rest to the full. We don't rest to the full, right? 
But here's what we miss out okay, in that gap, in that small gap between resting to be sovereign and resting to the full. We miss out love, joy, peace, intimacy, and calling. And many of us rest just to be functional. But the rest that God has ordained and designed for you is for you to rest into life and life in all its fullness. Love, joy, peace, clarity of purpose, a sense of calling, mission, fullness. That is what he desires for you and me. Without rest and without lots of it, we simply cannot live into the life that Jesus has on offer. Now my question to you is this. Do you view rest, Sabbath, how many hours you sleep, having margin in your life as an essential component to your discipleship with Jesus? Do you view your sleep, your rest, your Sabbath as essential components to your spirituality? Now, we are all familiar with this, that Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of the universe, in all the library of scripture, is to love God, to love people well. Now, this might be my personality type. I'm an INTJ perfectionist and a grumpy individual all together. Real joy and privilege to live with me. I find it hard, tough to love when I'm not well rested. When I'm not well rested. I think, personally, that 80% 80% of the work that goes into loving well is being emotionally and spiritually healthy. And that involves being well rested, being well rested. It's extraordinarily hard for us to love well if we are not well rested. AJ Soroba read about him earlier. He says this about uh, our human condition. Our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It's not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just do not know how to sit with God anymore. We have come to know Jesus only as the Lord of the harvest, forgetting He is the Lord of the Sabbath as well. Sabbath forgetfulness is driven so often in the name of doing stuff for God rather than being with God. He is the Lord of the harvest, but He is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of your work, but He is also Lord of your rest. And work and rest, they live in this symbiotic relationship, a rhythm that we ought to have in our lives. You hearing the gospel, God has come to give you rest. The third observation I like to draw from the text is this God made the Sabbath day holy. He made the Sabbath day holy. Now, there's a hermeneutical principle called the principle of the first mention. That is to say, whenever a word is first mentioned in scripture, it sets the precedence for how the same word is interpreted all through Scripture. It is interesting to note that the first time the word holy is ever mentioned in Scripture, it is found in Genesis. And the word holy was not in reference to a place or a space, but it was in reference to time. The Sabbath day is holy. You would think that after creating the world, the universe, the cosmos, Andromeda, Milky Way, God will make for himself a holy place. Maybe a mountain, maybe a temple, maybe a building. Who knows? God will make for himself a holy place. After all, every holy, every religion has a holy place, right? Islam has Mecca, Hinduism has Ganges River, Paganism has Stonehenge, Man United has Old Trafford. Every pagan religion has a holy place. 
Hey, hey, preaching the gospel. But instead of erecting for himself a holy place, God makes a holy day. This God doesn't have a holy space. He has a holy time. The Sabbath. This God isn't found in the world of space. In a temple on top of a mountain, at a spring, around a statue or a monument. He is found in the world of time. Abraham Joshua Herschel, who wrote this brilliant book on Sabbath, has this to say. He says this, The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. He goes on further to say, It is architecture in time. The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. And what he was getting at was this, that because God is the creator of all things, all of the universe is his temple. All of reality is his temple. You cannot pinpoint, confine, or restrict God to one geographical location. He is everywhere. He created all things. And because he can be found everywhere, he does not exist in the world of space, but more in the world of time. This means to say to us, to find God, we don't need to embark on a pilgrimage, though it is valuable. Go to Israel, go to IHOP, not a banquet place, the prayer house. Go to Bethel, go to anywhere. No doubt there is value there. To find God, you don't need to go on a pilgrimage. All you need to do is stop. Just stop. If you want to experience God, you enter His day, which is holy. It is the Sabbath. Matthew Sleep, there's a brilliant quote. has a, nothing much to do with what I'm saying now, but it says this, Sabbath keeping isn't a condition of getting into heaven. It is the condition we will find heaven when we get there. A place of rest, of delight. Where all that we do is oriented around the presence of as we move forward in the story, come to Exodus chapter 20, and all these Ten Commandments, familiar passage. Let's read it quickly. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, there's a lot we can get into uh, with, this birth, with this verse. There is an aspect that we can talk about where Sabbath is justice. Sabbath, practicing Sabbath, enacting Sabbath is a form of justice. And so uh, we won't get into that. We'll just move quickly and we'll come to that uh, in the weeks to come. Sabbath in the Ten Commandments is the only practice Spiritual practice that is found in the Ten Commandments. You know that. Sabbath is the one commandment with an explanation for it. You read the rest of the Ten. It doesn't go like, do not murder, because you know it's really bad, and like the families will feel very sad. You shouldn't murder. It's like a bad, 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 bad thing. rest of the, the Ten, you know, it just goes like, do not murder. Period. You know? And all that good stuff. But for the Sabbath, there is an explanation attached to the commandment. The Sabbath is the longest and most specific of the Ten Commandments. If you were to put the Ten Commandments in a pie chart, now this is speaking some of your love language, if you put it in a pie chart, the Sabbath commandment will constitute something like 37% of the commandments. Yet today, most of us look at Sabbath as something irrelevant or optional. If I were to cheat on my wife, chances are I would lose my job. I think more or less guaranteed I would lose my job. If I were to embezzle church funds, if I were to steal, 
I will lose my job. If I were to like stab someone on my way home later, I will lose my job. But in most places, maybe not our church, uh, okay, because you guys are very Sabbathy. But in most places, <laughs> not keeping the Sabbath, overworking, would be rewarded. It would be merited. You even get a raise for it. It's a commandment that we are proud to break. As you look at these commandments, it's important for us to ground the Ten Commandments from its origin point. At this point, okay, when the Ten Commandments were given, the people of God, generation after generation after generation, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Parents were slaves, grandparents were slaves, Atokong, Atoma, also slaves. For four generations, the people of God had one identity, slaves. To be a slave essentially meant you had no identity, no dignity, and no rest. In Egypt, there were no sick days, there were no vacation days, no paternity, no maternity leave, no long weekend. It was either you work or you die. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, was a tyrant. Either you work or you die. Let's have some examples of things that Pharaoh said. Why are you taking the people away from labor? Get back to your work. How many of you have said that before to your employees? You're stopping them from working. Make the work harder for the people so that they can keep working. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. Uh, <laughs> that is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given an straw yet. You must produce your full quota of bricks. Now you might think, you know, man, that, I, Pharaoh's not a bad guy. I got all of this from one chapter. All of this from one chapter. For four centuries, the people of God were trapped in an endless cycle of work with no reprieve. They were slaves. But God mercifully hears a cry and sends Moses. After the deliverance, Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was given not as a prerequisite to their freedom, but it was to show them how free people lived. And we read on further in Scripture, okay, giving the basis, track with me. Read on further in Scripture and we see that there's a retelling of the Ten Commandments further down the road. We come to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We read this together. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, and you, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female son nor your ox. You know, give your ox a break, your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, just some background. Exodus, the text we read earlier, was given to the first generation of people who had just been liberated from Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy, however, was given to the second generation of the children of Israel. None of them had been in slavery, and this was given to them at the edge of the Jordan right before they entered into the Promised Land. Deuteronomy seems like a very big word, but the word Deuteronomy, simply broken down, is the word Deutero and Nomos. Deutero means second, Nomos means the law. It can loosely translate to the second giving of the law. And I want you to note the difference, though, subtle. In Exodus, the command was to remember the Sabbath and to do it because God himself, Sabbath, he rested. And so we do so because he did it. The rationale or the charge towards Sabbath in Exodus was that of imitation. 
imitate God by Sabbath. But in Deuteronomy, the rationale was different. You read the last line, it says this, uh, two lines up. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, command the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In Exodus, Sabbath was kept as an act of imitation, imitate God. But in Deuteronomy, Sabbath was done as an act of liberation. It is a way of saying that we are liberated. We no longer live under the bondage of Egypt. We are free from Pharaoh's rule and we won't go back to the way things are, to the way things were. Sabbath is an act of liberation. Now, taking us back to our cultural moment, it's important for us to recognize the cultural distinctions and contrast between the days of Exodus and our current moment. In that day, you had a literal, real, external pharaoh who would say to you, work or die. A real figure. He would say to you, work or die. We don't have those anymore. Some of you might go like, my boss is a pharaoh. <laughs> it's not, I'm pretty sure it's not that bad. But I have news for you today. Pharaoh is well and alive. Not as a real person but as an internal reality you have cultivated for yourself. Today, we don't have external pharaohs, but an internal pharaoh that says to us, work or die, prove yourself, make something of yourself, show your worth, an internal slave driver, an internal pharaoh. And it's to that internal pharaoh that the fourth commandment speaks to. Sabbath is about dethroning our internal pharaoh. It's about dying to unbridled ambition, workaholism, the idolatrous worship of ourselves our work, and realigning our loves and longings to God. Sabbath is not just about rest. It is also resistance. It is also resistance. Are you with me? Man, there's so much other good stuff. But we shall end soon. I can't help to think that perhaps in this age of busyness, compulsive overworking. How should the people of God be distinguished? Now, if you read uh, all through scriptures, uh, this, the Jewish community was uh, essentially distinguished and known for two things. It was the circumcision of the penis, but also for their Sabbath-keeping ways. Uh, there's a famous line that goes, because the Jews kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept the Jews. I can't think of a people group that has been through as much uh, wars and oppression and also being uh, conquered by different nations, yet have its national and cultural identity still intact at the end of all of it. And one of the reasons uh, scholars uh, theorize it so is because the Jews kept the Sabbath, even in the most hellish of circumstances. Sabbath-keeping ways was a distinct attribute of the Jewish community. Thinking back to our current cultural moment, what ought to be the distinct attribute of the faith community, of those who profess to be Christ followers. In this culture of busyness, of hurry, what is to be our distinct quality and attribute? I would like to put it to you that it, is, it ought to be one of restfulness. Restfulness. And that is what the weary world craves and longs for. Rest seems like a passive, weak attribute, but rest wars against this culture of busyness and exhaustion. Rest is to our culture what 
the prince of peace is to the head of Satan. The Bible says that it's the prince of peace that crushes the head of Satan. A restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. Here's my point. Jesus, hear me saying this, is not glorified or seen as beautiful and desirable if his followers are exhausted, stressed, and worn out in the exact way of the world. When was the last time you saw a guy with eye bags, drooling, straight up exhausted and go, man, this is life in all its fullness. I want what that guy wants. Never. You look at the ones who are rested, who have joy, contentment, and peace. Jesus is glorified through restful, content, peaceful people who have overcome the way of the world. Now, um, me and Amy, uh, we, I'm just wrapping up with this last thought. Me and Amy, uh, for honeymoon, we went to New York City. Woohoo! New York City, and uh, we saw a bunch of great sites. Uh, you know, um, there's a famous statue that uh, it's outside of Rockefeller Center. How many of you have been in New York? Just show your hands. A bunch of you. Yeah, there's a famous statue outside Rockefeller Center. It's the statue of Atlas holding on to the world. Can you have the picture up? So it's Atlas uh, here in the world. That's not DC, but it's Atlas <laughs> holding on to the world. DC needs some work on his laps in order to make that happen. Hi. Okay. Atlas holding on to the world. Now, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, you know that Atlas uh, was a titan who was cursed with the burden of carrying the world for all eternity. And if you zoom in closer on his face, you'll see that it's one of straining, it's one of burdensome, it's tired. And, uh, you know, this is right outside Rock- Rockefeller Center, but this is, uh, there's this stocking contrast and juxtaposition that, uh, you know, if you're there, you really see it. But I have a picture up. Now, the statue of Atlas, it directly faces St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now, I, I managed to go into St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it's one of the most beautiful sites uh, I've ever seen in my life. I was spellbound. My, my jaw was dropped, and it's beautiful, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And uh, it, 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 it's this amazing contrast of, like, you know, uh, a, a statue of a, of a person with, like, that's burdened, that is uh, strained, uh, and he faces a... Uh, a building, it faces a structure and architecture that is one of straight up peace and beauty and tranquility. And so this is a really beautiful picture. But if you've ever been in St. Patrick's Cathedral, you walk around, you know that behind the high altar, there's actually another statue inside. And it's one of the boy Jesus. And that statue, here we have that that picture up. That statue is one of uh, the boy Jesus. And in his hand, he's holding the world. He's holding the world in his hands. And this is, a, this is an amazing contrast and juxtaposition. Let's have the two pictures up. On one hand, Atlas is one of burden, strain, weary, toiling. It's a curse. But on the other hand, with Jesus, you have him holding the world, radiating peace. He's all chill about it. The boy Jesus, no strain, no pain. There's this amazing contrast. What am I saying to you? There's no getting around the burdens of life, right? Living on, the, on this earth. Yes, there'll be bound to be burdens, challenges, temptations, tightness, and busyness. It will all come for us. But it's not a matter of eliminating them. It's a matter of how we carry them, how we carry them. And we can either do so with struggle and live in this perpetual strain and tension, much like Atlas, or we can carry it like the boy Jesus, with ease and peace. And the way we do so is by adopting his way, 
his yoke. And that is one of working for six days and taking a day to rest, to simply delight in God. That is the day of the Sabbath. And that is the day to live, that is the way to live into life for its fullness, to carry our weights or burdens with ease and with peace. I'll close off with one final thought. One final thought. There's this verse, it goes in Mark chapter 2. It says this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't about laws or rules. It is how we were made to function, how to thrive in the world. It is the way into life and life in all its fullness. Debating about whether to keep Sabbath is like debating about the law of gravity. We ignore it to our own peril. Or as the philosopher H.H. Palmer says that, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Sabbath is coming for you, either as a discipline you adopt or as discipline for life wrongly lived. It's not as punishment from God, but it is discipline when you've chosen to move out of the sacred rhythms to which you were designed with at the dawn of eternity. Sabbath is coming for you, either as a discipline you adopt or as discipline for a life wrongly lived. So, how many of you want to try Sabbath? <laughs> Real good. Can we stand? Can we stand? Uh, can we have my last scripture up from Hebrews chapter 4? Familiar passage. says in Hebrews 4, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You know, I heard a pastor once said, you know, um, you know we, I was in his church and uh, I said, oh, what time does worship start? And he replied real uh, quickly. He said, what do you mean, what time does worship start? Worship began at the dawn of eternity and it's still happening now. We simply wow. enter into worship. I was like, sorry I asked. <laughs> but it was, it was so funny. But I, I think that's the same way for rest, right? Rest is not something we produce. It is not in... Uh, a byproduct of the ingenuity of man, but rest is something that God has prepared for you and me. Rest is all around you. And all you have to do is stop and enter into that space. Or what uh, Abraham Herschel calls uh, great cathedral, architecture in time. Rest is something uh, that God has ordained, but not only has He ordained it, He has prepared and made provisions for you to enter into that rest. But that last line just catches me says this, therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Now this might be counterintuitive to some of you, but rest takes work. It takes effort. It takes reordering. It takes you uh, moving out of your uh, natural inclinations. It takes you uh, going out of your comfort zone, really, to set aside 24 hours to rest, to delight in God, to say no to that compulsive need to do more I love John Orbach's line when he says this, that we must rearrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. We must rearrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. And one of the first steps we take in rearranging life is to rediscover this sacred rhythm of rest, work, stopping, delighting in our God. Amen. Let's close our eyes for a moment. And I want you to do a slot take of uh, your heart even your physical body. If you're tired, if you're weary, 
if you are exhausted, beaten down by the demands of life, I want you to be aware of where you're at in life. Just take a moment. Consider where you're at. Consider how you've been reacting to people around you. Whether you've really loved well, are you able to love well? Just think through it. Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Beaten down? Weary? Burdened? Close your eyes in this place and let's just look to God and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we're at in life. in just a few moments I'm going to pray for uh, some people um, but you know I just really feel the, the grace and just the peace of God in this place is here is present you know rest is not an activity that we do or a byproduct of activity we do but rest is a person rest is found in the person of Christ and if Jesus is here and he wants to meet with some of you who's weary who's burdened who's tired exhausted he's come to give rest to your souls you feel that internal turmoil and struggle, worry, anxiety, malgrade depression. God is here. He wants to meet you and offer you rest. 